Father, all of us cry out, Amen, Amen. I'm alive. I'm alive because He lives. Lord, the only true life that we have is through You. We're so grateful, Lord, that as we lay in the grave, mercy called our name. Out of Your love and out of Your compassion, You gave us hope. You gave us life. You gave us a place, a space. You gave us a relationship with Your Father. We are so grateful, so thankful. May that praise and thanksgiving continue throughout today and the week in our lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know how many family uh, members are here from out of town, but uh, welcome. I know we have some of ours, our daughter, one of our daughters left, but uh, it's such a blessing to have, to have family uh, here. So Howard Hendricks uh, told a, it was a wonderful story, really. It was uh, one day about the faculty and the staff, they were, they were waiting on God. You see, in 1924, uh, Dallas Seminary was uh, brand new, fledgling uh, school, and they were already in debt. In fact, they were on the verge of bankruptcy. And as they were in that room uh, praying, they knew that the creditors were going to foreclose uh, at 12 noon on that day. And so that morning they, they met together and they got on their knees and they began to pray for God's provision. Now Harry Ironside, some of uh, you may recognize that name, he was in that prayer meeting and when it was his turn to pray, he said in his refreshingly candid way, Lord, we know that you own a cattle, the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, please sell some of them and give us the money. So, so it was just after Ironside prayed, knock, knock, knock on the door, the secretary came in with the check. Because just prior to that, a man had come in to the office and said, Howdy, I just sold two carloads of cattle over in Fort Worth, and I've been trying to make a business deal go through, and it won't work. And so I feel that God wants me to give you the money. Here's the check. <laughs> So she interrupted the meeting and, doc and handed the check to Dr. Chafer, who was the, the founder of, of the school. And we saw the amount, the exact sum of the debt. He turned to Dr. Ironside and he said, Harry, God sold some cattle. <laughs> now, I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about that story for just a moment. And I want to give you some context. When I was in the military... The military is all about planning. Now, I'm not the biggest planner in the world, uh, but nevertheless, it's all about planning. Uh, uh, from squadron officer school to air war college, you have to learn how to plan because you have to have a, a myriad of resources arrive at the same place at not the same time, but the right time. And in order to do that, you have to have a certain mindset, and this was mine, and this is what I was taught, and this is what I practice, and that is, and that, is that I would 
imagine myself sitting under the stars with uh, my wife. This, this was especially true in Italy. Wow, that was such a beautiful place. And we would be happy. We would be satisfied with the way the event went. The commanders would be satisfied. The stakeholders would be happy. Everybody would say, oh my, uh, you know, what a, what, a great, what a great event. And at that point was the day that I turned in the final report to go into the continuity uh, file about how to do that. Now, that then would reverse. In order to be there doing that, what did I have to do before that? What did I have to do before that and before that and before that and before that? Pretty soon, you were nine months prior. Pretty soon, you were a year out. A base-wide event would often take a year's worth of planning and activity to make that happen. Now, while the founders of Dallas Theological Seminary were literally on their knees in prayer for finances due that day, the door was opened and the answer came. Let me ask you a simple question. At what point in the past did God work in setting that up? When did that business deal that ultimately failed not go through and not go through, when did that start? How long had the cattlemen been working on this? Weeks? Months? Years? We don't know. What number of cows were required to come up with an exact amount? How did they get weighed? How did they get shipped? When was the check written? I mean, and how did he know about this fledgling seminary in the first place? I mean, I don't know what two cars of cattle cost today, but I'll guarantee you in 1924, two cars of cattle was a lot of money. How long did he have to decide before he said, this money is reserved not for me and my future endeavors, but for God? Now, the point I'm making is obvious. For the secretary to bring that check in at the moment of greatest need, the events leading up to that moment took months, years, and I would argue planned from eternity past. John Nelson Darby wrote, God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes which he is behind. We have to learn this and let him work and not to think much of man's busy movements, for they will accomplish God's. When we come to the end of the book of Malachi, the curtain draws closed on the Old Testament, and God appeared to go silent. No word, no prophet, no scriptures. Where did God go? Where was God for 146,100 silent nights? More to the point, my guess is that some of you are feeling maybe like you're in a season of silent nights now. Whether it's a lost job, the end of a relationship, the death of a loved one, a difficult diagnosis, whatever it might be. Or perhaps you're in a season of victory and Enjoy, but even those of you who are in that season know well that there are seasons in your own life 
when it seemed that God had gone silent. I mean, at times silence may be so deafening that it causes you to wonder if God is really there. C.S. Lewis went through this struggle. Or perhaps it makes us ask if he really cares. Yeah, he cares about the world. He cares about the big movements. Those kinds of things that bring about the end times. But does he care about me? I mean, when Malachi closed, it was with a thud. But when the New Testament opens, almost immediately. I mean, you go from one page practically to the next page, and you're at Christmas. I mean, it closes with this promise that there's going to be one who would prepare the way of the Lord and that even Elijah himself would come, or at least one like Elijah. And we have this opening in the New Testament, the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. And out of the silence of those 400 years, God's voice rose above All others, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of David who would come and reign and rule. So what are we to understand in this? And I believe it's just this, that God's silence is never to be equated with God's absence. He hasn't gone anywhere. And in fact, when He's silent, He is working in your life. So what was God doing for that uh, 400 years? 400 years. I mean, that's a a long time. As Darby said, he was rearranging the stage of the world to be perfectly positioned for the gospel to be spread with a common language, common peace, relatively speaking, the Pax Romana, and extensive transportation. They had roads everywhere. It's amazing. Some of those roads are still there. Some of the bridges that they built, still there. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 4.4, But when the time, when the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born uh, under the law, and as Ken mentioned, to redeem us. The story behind Christmas obviously is a story from eternity past, but as we look at this Christmas story before the or after at the end of this 400 years before Jesus was born, God was perfectly orchestrating the scenes until precisely the right time had come. If you don't feel close to God, I just, based on the word of God, he has never been more active in your life. He could not be. He could not be because he is neither more nor less. He is always active for you. He is rearranging the stage behind the scenes in your life. And at just the right time, the curtain will rise so that you will be able to accomplish his will, his purpose. His vision for you. He may seem silent, but he is not absent. Isaiah 7, 14, you all know it. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. He is with us. I mean, this morning we're going to, we're going to plumb, not the depths, but we're going to look into a profound truth of God 
on a blank page. <laughs> that page is between the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you go to the end of Malachi before uh, Matthew, you're going to find a blank page. Now, some of them might have New Testament written on it, but that's, that's all it is. And that one little page covers 400 years of silence. At the end of uh, the book of Malachi, we have these uh, predictions that I mentioned before. In the next turn of the page, we have the life of Jesus Christ, God's Son. I mean, when we left the Jews in Malachi, they were actually a, a small, insecure, insignificant group that could hardly hold on to the city of Jerusalem. They couldn't hardly work it and build it so that it would be safe. But now they're everywhere. They're well-established, they're, they're numerous. When we left Malachi, Persia was in charge. So you had this kingdom from the east that ruled everywhere. Now you have Rome. Where in the world did, did they come from? And even more radical than that, the lingua franca, which is, I think, French, that used to be the lingua franca, but is now English, back then was Greek. Everyone spoke Greek. Everyone understood Greek. It was so much so that in the nation of Israel, the Hebrew Old Testament, or what we would, they would call the Torah, we might call, or they would call the Pentateuch, was translated into Greek and was used by most people. In fact, quite often when Jesus quoted the Scripture, He quoted out of the Septuagint. There... Sacred writings were in Greek. And the New Testament ended up in Hebrew. Well, no, it didn't, did it? It ended up in Greek. That's an amazing thing. Their sacred writings, their language, Hebrew and Aramaic, presented themselves to themselves and the world in Greek. That's just a, it's a remarkable thing at just the right time. And so we have... Lots of changes. I mean, uh, we have, when we left, there were no such thing as Pharisees. What's a Pharisee? And a Sadducee. What's a Sadducee? But yeah, they dominate the New Testament scene. I mean, so that's a, the biggest blank page you've ever turned. I mean, so what could we possibly cover this morning in uh, 400 years? We'll look at a, a, a couple of little things. But how long is 1,400 years? So I look, this day in history, well... No one knows what happened here 400 years ago. We do know what happened in the year. Well, I mean, a few people know a few things, but it's, it's, it's difficult, and I didn't do all the history research to find that. But in 1621, you had uh, 57 unmarried women set sail uh, from England to come over here to uh, marry the, uh, the brand-new uh, colonists who were hanging around the shore there in, in Virginia. And, and what, what does that mean? It'd be another 150 years after that that America became a nation. So when, when we say 400 years, we're talking about a pretty hefty stretch of time. Can you imagine being a Jew during those, during those times? Where, where, is, where are the prophets that are promised. Where is uh, God? What is happening here? It was as if they were left entirely destitute. 
And there are a lot of details we could look at. It's amazing history, but we're only going to look at a few big ones, primarily the ones found in Daniel. In Daniel 2, 8, 11, 7, we're, we're not going to go there. You know the stories. If you don't, please take the time to uh, read them. But one night, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And this dream was so disturbing to him that he called for his, uh, the Magi to come in there. And he's, he's like, okay, I had a dream. <clears throat> and they're like, cool, tell us the dream. And we'll give you the interpretation. He said, nah, nah, that's not the way this is going to work. Okay, this is a big dream, right? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell me the dream and tell me the interpretation, and then we'll be good. And, of course, they went, that, uh, only the gods can do this. We, we cannot do this. You've got to give us something to work with so we can practice our, you know, our, our thing, right? He said, no. Nah. Now, so he's going to kill them all. Now, ultimately, Daniel gets word of this, right? And he goes to Nebuchadnezzar after, after prayer, and he says, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, here's your dream. And he gives him the dream. And he said, you dreamed of a large statue with a gold head and a silver chest and arms uh, of uh, bro uh, b uh, bronze belly and thighs and iron legs. Now, from history, as we look back on this, we know that this was a uh, succession of kings where you have the Babylonian, the Medo-Persian, then you have the Greek, and finally you have Rome, and then there's some other things down there that we haven't got to yet. And so what we find also, in addition to that, is that in Daniel 9, uh, or 8, and 10 and 11, Daniel spoke a lot about these things. A goat came from the west with a single horn between its eyes. And it went and it, it, it ran into the ram, this big ram, and it, it, it killed the ram. And he became very great. But at the height of his power, it says in Daniel 8, 8, the horn was broken off. Now horns, as you know, I've told my story about my lovely bride and Michelangelo's statue. If you know Michelangelo's statue of Moses, he has horns. Uh, and the reason he has horns is horns are representative of power in uh, the ancient Near East. Power. And so you have these horns. So we're talking about a major power. And in uh, Daniel uh, 8, it says that when that big horn was broken off, four new horns, which are four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Daniel says that in chapter 8. The four kingdoms are mentioned again in Daniel 11, which says that his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised. Now, you've got to understand, if you know this period of history, I'll, I'll explain very briefly uh, what, what's happening. But this prophecy is so accurate that liberals continue to this day to try to make Daniel dated post-Alexander's rule. They say it cannot be, you cannot 
come up with this and not have lived it. Because the passages describe two years or 200 years in advance precisely what happened to Alexander and his, his empire. And they just, they can't stand it. They can't stand it. And of course, it doesn't matter even if you were to prove it. You do understand that, I hope. Arguments are pretty futile against the unregenerate mind because they'll just find the next thing. Um, that took me a while to learn, but, uh, but it's a lesson that I've, that I've learned. So I, I now just present the gospel and, and, and move on. So in a word, what happened between the Testaments? What happened between the Testaments was Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander was tutored by Aristotle. Perhaps you've, you've heard of him. Now, he, unfortunately, sadly, I mean, it was a, uh, it was a, a, a sad uh, life. But he was 19 years old when his father, Philip, was assassinated. And you have to understand that, that Alexander was a turbulent man and he wanted to marshal an army. And he did so, not a large one, but a very fast one. And he went and he decided that he was going to take over Persia. Because, you know, they have a long history. You, you do know, you've heard of Thermopylae, right? You've heard of the 300. You, you've heard, they, these, they, these people have been going after each other for a very long time. And Alexander decides he's going to end this. Daniel talks about this takeover as a, like a leopard with wings. The rapidity of it. And he went from west to east. And in a decade, he conquered the entire known world all the way into India. I mean, one of the most amazing stories. I'm going to tell you right now an amazing story that you've probably never heard. You know, maybe a couple of people have heard it, but it is not well known. And it's from the life of, of Alexander and Jadis, the high priest. So Manassas is the brother of Jadis, and he decided that he wanted to marry outside the family. Not a good thing when you're, you know, the brother of the high priest and you want to marry outside. When I say the family, I mean I'm not talking about their family or extended family. I'm talking about he wanted to marry someone from Syria. And so he married the daughter of Sanballat, not the same Sanballat that we know from other places. But nevertheless, he was a a satrap in Samaria. And Manassas uh, had to flee uh, Jerusalem for his life because this was not... Uh, this was not accepted at all. But as a good father-in-law, Sanballat said, I'll tell you what, because you've had to leave your home and family, you're up here in Samaria, uh, we're, I'm going to build you a temple. We're going we're to build a temple, and the Jews who are stuck here in Samaria, why, uh, they're going to be worship, be able to worship at a temple here. And uh, so what happened, though, was in the process of all this, Alexander... Uh, began to began his role. This was like in the third year of his uh, moving uh, to the uh, to the east, and so he began to take over things. And Sanballat, being a very uh, politically astute man, knew that Darius was in deep trouble, the Persian king. So he says to himself, "Self, uh, Alexander, 
Alexander's knife is closer to my neck than Darius's knife is, so I'm going to flip. So he did. So he said, Alexander, you're the guy. I'm, 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 I'm with you. However, Jadis said, ain't no way, ain't never going to happen. Nothing going. I'm with Darius till death do us part. Well, when Alexander finds this out, Alexander is like ticked off. And so he and his army, they march down to Jerusalem. And they're going to kill Jadis. They're going to kill his family. They're going to raid the temple. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to make a mess of things. Well, Jadis has a dream. And in this dream, just before Alexander gets there, in the dream, it's go out and, and meet Alexander in person, face to face, leave the city, go to Alexander. And so he did. So he goes out there, and, he, and, and when he comes face to face with, with Alexander, who is on his horse, Alexander sees him, Alexander gets off his horse, gets on his knees, and he bows before Jadis. And of course, Jadis is going, uh, this is like way different than what I had expected. <laughs> you, know, you know, he was going to be dead, right? And Alexander tells him, Jadis, it was you who appeared to me in a dream three years ago telling me to come to attack Persia. And he said this as well. Josephus tells us all this if you're wondering where this is coming from. I was told that you would tell me something good from the book of Daniel. <laughs> and Jadis showed him how Alexander fulfilled those prophecies. Now, Alexander and his entire army, uh, they rejoiced with the people of Jerusalem. He went, I'll bet you didn't know this. He made sacrifice in the temple. Think about that to Yahweh. He gave gifts to the Jews and he swore that he would never harm Jerusalem and that he would protect the temple. Needless to say, Sanballat's temple didn't last very long. Now, ten years later, I mean, Alexander was young, uh, right? He died at the age of 33. He did not leave an heir. He had an heir in, 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 the, in the form of an unborn uh, child. And uh, unfortunately, it's reported that he said something that, you know, had he lived, he would have regretted saying it. But uh, this notion of who, sh who shall rule in your absence. And his answer was the strongest. So his four generals, when they were still really nice with each other because they were like in each other's presence. Have you ever noticed that? Sometimes, and you really see that in social media. The further away someone is from you, the more willing they are to stick a shiv in you. Is that an amazing thing? Well, they were in person and they decided... What we're going to do, here's what we're going to do, because we're all reasonable men. Of course, we're all the strongest as well. Uh, we're going to allow this young 
uh, uh, child who would soon to be born by the name of Alexander II. You never heard of him, have you? Um, we're going to let him grow up. And we'll manage the kingdom until he gets of age, and then he will be king. Of course, as soon as they separated, it was like, kill him, kill him. Kill his mom, too. And so they killed Roxanne, his mother, and they killed Alexander the second, And it was broken up into these four kingdoms. And you've, you've probably heard some of these names, like Cassander, Ptolemy, Seleucus, Antigonus. These are the people, and you may not have known this. The whole Cleopatra, Mark Antony thing, that was all part of this Greek thing. They, they ruled this area up until the Romans came through. And this, was a big, this was a big deal, and that's why Greek was spoken everywhere. And what I want you to do is, I want to encourage you to stop and think several times a day, God is working in my life. God is working on my problem. God is working on behalf of my loved ones. And no matter what you do, no matter what you see or don't see, remember that God is present with you. Even though you can't see Him, God was not absent from Israel. God was perfecting the situation so that when Jesus Christ was sent, that it would be just the right time. One last uh, mention about this 400 years. There's so many other things that could be said. Yet 400 years, that's uh, 20 generations of people who were waiting for the promised uh, Messiah, who were waiting for the promised one who would come to prepare the way. And I can only imagine that many of them had faithfully waited in the temple. But when we come to Luke Chapter 2, we find one Simeon. He had probably seen many, many fall away in hoping for the Messiah. But the Spirit of God had told Simeon that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And he did. Imagine the joy of this man after 20 generations holding one of the one of the first people and one of the only people I would imagine this very small number who would have held the Messiah in his arms and experienced firsthand what God had revealed. So the question remains the same. Are you in a period of waiting Maybe it's been incredibly long. Maybe it's been incredibly frustrating. Not, not days, not weeks, not months. Maybe, maybe years. You feel as though God has forgotten you. You're beginning to doubt. Don't lose hope. God is at work in the waiting. Even in the most challenging seasons of life, the only one who can completely and perfectly fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts is Christ. You know, the symbolism of the hand is uh, 
It's very rich and it's, and it's very varied, in fact. Amity, authority, benediction, uh, force, greeting, honor. I mean, you know, salute, all kinds of things. I, I, I just want to share a few of them with you, you know. So, like, if, if you put your hand on on your breast in any places that means submission or or, or, or love if if you have them if you have them folded you know there's this notion of repose there's this uh, uh, peace perhaps if you cover the eyes it's uh, shame if they're crossed at the wrist it's bondage if it's the laying on of hands it's like the transference of authority the transference of of, of powder power if 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 they're open, it's uh, bounty. If it's clenched, it's it's threatening. If it's if it's outstretched, it's 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 welcome. If 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 it's placed palm open palm on open palm, it's a receptiveness. If it's raised, it's adoration. It's worship. It's to the head. It's thought. It's care. If you ring them, and there are hundreds of these. Oh, by the way. I'm just giving you a a few, but there's also sadness. When I was in the Air Force for six months, I served as the chaplain for what's called the PICU, which is the the pediatric intensive care unit. If you're a medical person, you know this. I hope you don't know this from any other way. I saw enough pain for a lifetime in those six months. Literally every day I walked into someone's life crisis and just outside the PICU there was a hallway that left from the there was a waiting area and then there was a hallway and then there was a PICU and if you can imagine this this wall being all glass that's about the size of it and no matter what time of the day whether it was three in the morning or two in the afternoon if you walked by, most people wouldn't notice, I noticed. If you walk by on the glass, you're going to see handprints. And you're going to see a smudge where the head is. And there's so much pain in that window. So much concern and so much wondering what is going to happen Next, any time, day or night, waiting, waiting, would their child live, would their child die? I could feel the sacredness as I would walk by, every bit as sacred as a chapel. But hands also can speak of salvation. The salvation that Jesus Christ offers to each and every one of us. The way we think of our hands in waiting is oftentimes in some sort of prayer, beseeching God for something. And what I want you to know today, if nothing else, is that waiting time, waiting time, is not and never has been wasted time. Silent nights are filled with the presence of God even when you don't see Him 
working. And on that silent night, as we begin to turn our eyes and our minds towards Christmas, his voice spoke loudly and his hands moved swiftly to bring salvation to us. Father, we're deeply grateful that even in silence you speak to us. May our hearts be open to what you have to say. Instead of our minds running crazily towards you don't care, you don't act on my behalf, you have left me, you have abandoned me. May it turn to, Lord, I may not see how you're moving the scenes and how you're working behind there, but I know that at just the right time, you will reveal it to me. And Lord, in that notion, I, I think of the day when we'll know even as we're known. <laughs> yeah. That will, be, that will be a day when we understand all that you have done in our behalf. We thank you, we praise you, and we give you thanks through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.